Please open your Bibles to today's scripture reading from Luke 7. I'll be reading from Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered Simon, answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This text paints a scene that will seem strange to us Westerners in the 21st century in some ways, but which would have been quite familiar to those who first heard Jesus and those who first read Luke's account. A local religious leader has heard Jesus teach and invites him for dinner and for some theological discussion. Scholars tell us that although there would have been a guest list for an occasion like this, it would have also been open to the public, which explains the presence of this woman, a sinner in the city, presumably a sexually immoral sinner, perhaps even a prostitute. The woman is at Jesus' feet as he reclines at the table. Now, that's one strange element. We don't lay down to uh, eat unless it's having a bowl of popcorn in front of the television. But formal dinners like that in that day would have guests uh, at a small, a low table, reclining on their left elbow, eating with their right hand, with their feet out behind them. And there... Um, 
servants would wash their feet dirty or muddy from walking in sandals. And uh, behind the servants, the local population who were interested in listening in could be found. So don't picture da Vinci's portrait of the Last Supper. Um, this is reclining at the table with servants behind the feet and the public behind them. Strange to us, but familiar to them. But something is not right. Something's not right. The guest of honor has been scandalously insulted. No servant washes Jesus' feet. Not even a bowl is provided for him to wash his own feet. There's been no kiss of greeting in the first century. If the host and the guest were of equal social status, the host would kiss his guest on the cheek. If the guest was of superior social status, the host would kiss his hand, but there is no kiss of any kind here. And we might assume early in hearing this story that those details about the customary courtesies are not mentioned simply because Luke wants to tell the story briefly. But as the story unfolds, we realize that the omission of these courtesies is fraught with meaning. Even if uh, we are talking about an informal, less formal culture like our own, you would expect certain pleasantries if you came to my house. You would expect me when I open the door to say something like, it's nice to see you. Come in. I would take your coat and your hat if it's that kind of weather. I would offer you a seat. And if these things are absent, you're going to feel like you've been snubbed. And the experts on that culture tell us that the way Jesus was treated by Simon on this occasion is practically unprecedented. It raises the question, why did Simon even invite Jesus to his house? The guests expect our Lord to mutter a few tight-lipped remarks about obviously not being wanted and withdraw, but he absorbs the insult. Contrast Simon's reception of Jesus with the way the woman acts. Evidently, she has heard Jesus teach about God's unconditional love for sinners, even such as herself. And she has witnessed this harsh treatment of the master, this insult, and moved by love and gratitude, she steps up to honor Jesus as best she can. It was brave of her to do so. Not only was Simon and his fellow Pharisees hostile toward Jesus, they were hostile toward sinners like herself. And yet, she offers Jesus a kiss. Not on the cheek, that would be presumptuous, but she kisses his feet. And there, she breaks down. Who can say whether it was more from a sense of gratitude for what she had learned from him and the love of God that she had experienced in Jesus' ministry or tears over the way he had been treated publicly. But her tears flow freely 
and make up for the basin that has not been offered. Having no towel, she dries Jesus' feet with her hair. And, and here again, cultural distance may dull the impact that that detail would have had for those who witnessed it and those who read it in Luke's Gospel. A first century Jewess did not let down her hair except in the presence of her husband. To do so was grounds for divorce, according to Talmud. It was considered provocative, and today, still today, in conservative parts of the Middle East, male hairdressers are not permitted to touch women's hair. But this woman is less concerned about her own shame, more about the shame of the master. So she responds to the need of the moment. And besides weeping at his feet and drying his feet, she anoints his feet with perfume. If she was a prostitute, she would have had a flask of anointing oil that she would use to make her person more appealing to customers. Well, she's not going to need that anymore. She offers it to the Lord to honor him. And Simon's calculated snub of his guest is not going according to plan. His refusal to offer the expected hospitality triggers this unexpected act of devotion. And a sensitive man would apologize to his guest and thank the woman for compensating for his rudeness. But such is not to be the case. Verse 39 reads, When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, He'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. This woman was making a dramatic turnaround in life, but Simon misses it because he made a couple of mistakes that people still make today. First of all, Simon was assuming that decent people have nothing to do with sinners. I met a man in prison years ago who was there for a drug offense, and it was his second imprisonment. The first time he had been incarcerated, he found Christ. He was converted. He became a follower of the Lord Jesus, and when he was released from prison, he began to look for a church where he could grow in his relationship to Christ, but he found that in many churches, he wasn't welcome. They didn't want to have an ex-con around. So instead, he found fellowship with Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, but the friends there would, after their meetings, go out and get stoned. And so he slipped back into the old life, got busted again. That's when I met him in prison, and he said something I'll never forget. He said, I hope that the next time I get out of prison, I can find a church that's not prejudiced against criminals. It's worth asking ourselves, how would he fare here? So that's the first mistake Simon makes. Good people don't have anything to do with sinners. 
And a second mistake he makes is that he thinks that he's not a sinner. Sinners are, well, they're criminals and prostitutes and swindlers and people who waste their paycheck gambling and, and so on. And that's not him. So he doesn't really think that he's in that ballpark. You know, one of the hardest things sometimes in evangelism is getting decent people to acknowledge that they need a savior. It, it, to, to call them a sinner seems to be an affront to their self-esteem, uh, to negate their sense of being a person of worth. But the reality is that all of us, the Bible says, are sinners in need of a Savior. None of us measures up to the perfect ideal that God had in mind when he created human beings. And as the prayer book puts it, we all have done what we ought not to have done and left undone what we ought to have done, and there is no health in us. All of us. I was sharing the gospel once with a man, and uh, the gospel, that is, of how uh, Christ our Savior paid the penalty for our sins so that God, just though he is, is able to now extend eternal life to us as a free gift because our penalty has been paid. He himself, in Christ, paid it. But in order to accept that as good news, sometimes you have to have people understand the bad news. That they need that gift. That, they, that they're not right with God, however good they might think of themselves as. And so I turned in the Bible to Romans 6.23 and asked this man to read it. He read, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I said, All? He said, that's what it says here. And I said, are you calling me a sinner? <laughs> and he laughed, and I laughed along with him, but that is the reality. In God's eyes, each of us needs a Savior. And it was for sinners that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. He's the best friend a sinner ever had. Jesus says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to tell you. The scholars tell us that all over the Middle East, this precise phrase is used to introduce a blunt speech that the listener is not going to want to hear. I have something I want to say to you. Two men, verse 41, and this is the parable for the day. We're in a series on the parables. This is a short one. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him $100,000, the other $10,000. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Before I finish the verse, let's point out that's what God does for you and me. Cancels the debt. Cancels the debt. So, Jesus asks, which of them will love him more? Now, although Simon misread the woman's gestures, there was no mistaking the point of Jesus' parable. The logic is inescapable. So he answers lamely, 
well, I, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Love in this short parable is a response to freely given grace. The money lender does not give them more time to pay him back. The money lender doesn't reduce the debt or negotiate. He just cancels the debt. And love is the response to that grace. And then Jesus goes on to show how the woman's actions illustrate this truth. Look at verse 44. Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon. Now stop there for a moment. He has some hard things to say to this Pharisee, but even though he's talking to Simon, he's looking at the woman. So we can assume that his tone is gentle, not harshly scolding. He turned toward the woman said to Simon, you see this woman? Now, if he had stopped right there, the answer would be no. Simon didn't really see the woman. He just saw a sinner. He saw somebody that he wishes had not come to his house that day. He didn't really see the person. You see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. He doesn't suggest that Simon should have got down on his knees and washed Jesus' feet. He doesn't even give me any water. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. He didn't suggest where Simon should have kissed him, on the hand, on the cheek. Just, you didn't give me a kiss of any kind. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. doesn't mean that she earned forgiveness by her act of love. That would contradict what Scripture teaches everywhere. It would contradict even the point of Jesus' parable that he just finished delivering, in which love is a response to freely offered grace. And so uh, another translation helps us understand this better, perhaps. The New English Bible translates it, her great love proves that her many sins have been forgiven. Her love was evidence that she had received forgiveness and was responding to God's undeserved grace. But, end of verse 47, he who has been forgiven little loves little. Now theoretically, this could mean, Simon, you're a good person. You're a righteous man. You're a leader in our community. You haven't sinned very much, and so you don't really need God's grace. And that's why you don't love as much as somebody who has experienced God's grace. Far more likely, Jesus means, Simon, you're a sinner, too. You just don't realize it. 
you have many sins, but you're not aware of them, and so you haven't repented and you haven't been forgiven. And that's why you don't love me. God's unique representative, God's son. Jesus has already implied that Simon is guilty of deep levels of pride, rejection of sinners, arrogance, insensitivity, hard-heartedness, a misunderstanding of the grounds for God's forgiveness, hostility, a judgmental spirit, sexism, and the most damning critique of all, Simon witnesses this woman's act of love and still just writes her off. We're not told how Simon responds. We're told that the guests say, who does this Jesus think he is? Announcing forgiveness of sins. They don't, they don't recognize him as God's unique agent and authority for forgiving sins and receiving gratitude. Years ago, a preacher said, forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. You could argue that that's true. That forgiveness is man's deepest need and God's highest achievement. The story is told in Spain of a father and teenage son who have had one argument too many. It is the straw that breaks the camel's back. They've been tense in their relationship for so long, and this is it. And the boy leaves home. And the father is heartbroken and searches far and wide for his son, but to no avail. And finally, puts an ad in the Madrid newspapers. Dear Paco, all is forgiven. Please come home. I love you, Dad. Oh, meet me in front of the post office at noon. <laughs> Dear Paco, all is forgiven. Please come home. Meet me in front of the post office at noon. I love you, Dad. And the next day, 400 Pacos showed up. looking for reconciliation and love and acceptance. Writ large in the life of Jesus is this message that the woman got. A love letter from God. All is forgiven. Come home. I love you. Maybe God will find a few Pacos here today. Let's pray. Simon's response is unrecorded, and there's good reason for that. The open-endedness of this account helps us bring it from the first century into our own encourages us to sit in judgment not on Simon but on ourselves and to ask what would I do if I were Simon? 
How will I respond to Jesus? Will you say, if you haven't already done so, I realize I am a sinner. And I need to receive God's offer of free grace just as this woman did. And then naturally I will love Jesus. Won't you welcome into your life, if you haven't already done so, the one who proved himself to be the best friend a sinner ever had. I ask, Father, that you would do what human lips cannot do, and that is awaken faith in hearts as we hear this portion of your word, Jesus' story and the surrounding narrative and dialogue, and let us bring it into our own lives and as Dave already prayed earlier in the service, not just hear it and understand it, but respond to it as you would have us. For some, that might mean coming home to the Father like Paco, and for some, many of us, it will mean a fresh appreciation of the grace that we have already embraced and a fresh appreciation of what the table of our Lord represents. It's in his name we pray and for his sake, amen.